0: Good morning, man. I'm glad you are here today. We're going to be asking and answering the question today in our course of sermons called Life and Teaching, who is man? This is a foundational and essential question that we have to get right. Uh, I think somewhere in my subconscious I'm still bothered by the fact that I preach long sermons and so I feel like I have to always justify it. (laughs) Um, um, But what I've discovered uh, about myself and I'm just growing more comfortable with my relationship with myself about who God made me to be uh, is I'm made to teach God's word among other things. but, But that's what God made me to do. And in a world that is always teaching there's never not teaching all information is instructing in something i'm not responsible for your attention span you are god's not going to ask me what i thought about your attention span he's going to say did you give them what i gave you to give them i'll answer for that not you and so in order to be faithful, I'm going to continue to preach long sermons because I promise you, nobody at Fox, CNN, nobody at whatever.com you decide to be discipled by is worried about your attention span to the extent of teaching you to obey the Lord. They're making sure they keep you with short segments that keep you looking, keep you looking, keep you looking. And what you're not aware of is you're being manipulated to continue to buy the information. So what I want to do is in some manner on Sunday mornings, the one opportunity we have to gather not shortchange you on what will actually change your life. So I hope today that you're able to muscle through, that you're able to grit it out, pay attention, The notes are available for you on the blog at TheologyInTheDirt.com. So if you struggle paying attention and need to look down, look up, look, please do it. That's okay. Use the notes. You can use your Bible digitally or in print, whatever version you want. But we want to make sure these fundamental questions get asked and answered appropriately. So we want to ask, who is man? Who is man? We're asking who mankind is. We're asking in that question who a human being is. So when we say, who is man? We're asking, who is humanity? And in asking that question, we're not leaving women out. When God creates people, he calls them Adam. And Adam properly translates as man, or mankind, or human beings. We don't have to play silly sociological games with our language. When we call people and things, who and what God calls them, and we define those nouns the way God defines them, it's totally and completely okay. A word's meaning, and this is important for us um, in our culture and for us when we do Bible study, a word's meaning isn't determined by the myriad of possibilities in a dictionary or a society's attempt to define a word. Now, this is important as we exegete our society, but also as you read your Bible. Just because you have a Greek and Hebrew dictionary doesn't mean every word in that dictionary applies to that word you just looked up. That's the exact error on the opposite end of the spectrum that the culture makes in defining words however they want to. We just justify it. A word's meaning is determined by how the author uses it in the context in which they use it. That's called literature and reading and comprehension. We're not literary deconstructionists. We're not naturalists when it comes to words and definitions. That's a different worldview. That's a different team. That's atheism played out in literature. We don't play that game. A word's meaning is defined by how the author uses the word and their intent in using the word and the way in which they used it. When we come to the Bible, the Trinitarian God of the Bible is the single author who used many scribes. And God spoke and he revealed through those scribes in a time and place. And how God used the word is how he intends us to define it. Which means when we go to look for a definition, we don't just start applying multiple definitions and make it mean what we want it to mean. We understand the nuance of a word and we understand the setting in which God spoke it and why God spoke it and then we know a definition. And so when we come to defining words, we need to know God's intent and how God used the word, not how our culture used it, not how we want it used, but how did God use it and what does it mean according to God. That's where you find truth. That makes sense? So, when we use words the way the Bible uses words, it's okay to let God's definition stand. Man, mankind, human, all equal, male and female, because that's what God says and that's what God means. So, when we ask who is man, we're asking who human beings are as created by God. Now, 1 Timothy 4.16 reminds us, this is the basis of this course of sermons. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching persevere in these things for in doing this you save both yourself and your hearers when it comes to answering the question who is man our answer will be the aroma of life to many people probably you in this room it will be the aroma of life yes but I want you to understand also when we ask and answer this question who is man it's going to be the aroma of death to some because it's going to conflict with how they want to define humanity Since Genesis 3, humans who happen to be in a state of rebellion against God want to throw off God's restraints, God's boundaries for human flourishing. But if we want life, if we want abundant life, if we want full life, if we want flourishing life, we do well to let God define what being human is. Understand our current sociological challenges are not new to the world. Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun heresies and false teachings and bad ideas that are have been before and they go out of style and they come back so what we're dealing with sociologically is not new to the world it's just recycled sin but for many of us it's new and it's the first time many have encountered it sins and lies and the fruit of sins and lies in the world system runs in its cycle so We're just back to a place humanity's been before. God's eternal word addresses it just fine. A proper understanding of who God says humans are should lead us, and this is huge, it should lead us to seek the healing of humanity. Because human beings are innately valuable. I want you to hear this very carefully. They're innately good and they're worth rescuing. Jesus taught us how to do kingdom work effectively in the gospel of Luke and I'll reference this a little later when he said heal and then preach to them that the kingdom has come near Jesus wants us to heal because humanity is innately valuable you are innately valuable when God made you he spoke over you in Genesis chapter 1 very good God didn't make any junk So he intends to fix what sin has broken. And he says, preach to them this good news that the kingdom has come near. There's a way to be reconciled to God. Do you know the Bible never speaks about your nature and mine as innately evil like we have a tendency to do in our evangelical cultures? The Bible never says that, it's not in the Bible. We are not by design evil because God's not evil. We are not innately wretched because God's not wretched. We're made in his image, not the image of sin, and God has never sinned, he's holy. And we're made in his image, and we are by design, not evil, not wretched, not bad, and not foolish. Bible never says that. God declared all of creation, at the apex of his creation, humanity, he looked at it and his creative genius, and he said, very good. Isn't that awesome? On a few occasions, words are spoken about people. It's in David and Jesus' words referencing people who are seeking to do evil to them. In Jesus' instance, particularly a parable. They're not demeaning man's innate nature. They're simply stating that man does evil things. Humans are broken and under God's condemnation because of sin. In fact, Jeremiah 17, one says, Judah's sin is written on their hearts with a diamond point. Man's broken, no doubt. But man is not innately evil, wretched, or foolish. God looked at you and said, very good. Very good. You have a sin problem, but you don't have an innate evil problem. We need to be careful how we speak to and about Jesus's image bearers. This is why our language is said in the Proverbs to carry life and death. Is because we bear the image of God and when we speak to one another and about one another, those words carry prophetic significance. And what we say about and to has power. And so we want to see this in the text together. So we're going to read Genesis 1, 26 to 28 together. I think this is the 13 millionth time we've read this passage when we started this course of sermons. But as you heard me say before, I'll say it to you again, if you want the framework of what God says about creation and all things, go back to Genesis 1 and 2. It is the foundational framework of everything. And we don't want to overlook it. So if you would, stand with me. This is part of the bottom-up, right-left learning process of human beings. And we're going to stand, and we're going to read, and we're going to hear together. It's Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 to 28. It's going to be on the screen. We're going to read it together. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock of the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you. So what can we observe about man? Let me say this about my notes. I absolutely abhor my notes this morning. They're horrible. The order is bad. The structure is horrible. And I couldn't find a way to make it make any better sense than what I have. So I'm I'm ashamed at what I present you this morning. There's 10 pages. So it's not a lack of effort. It's just I struggled to put this together in any kind of order. So you may think it's great. I hate it. So I'm just telling you right now, I'm not happy with my notes, but they're there for you to use. And you can critique them all day long because I hate them. But we're going to go with them because it's the best I could do. What can we observe from the Lord's word to us about us? What can we observe about man? First observation we're going to see in verse 26, we find that man is the image of God. Man is the image of God. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Man's the image of God. Moses chooses two words here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to communicate the truth that we're like God. He chooses the word image and likeness. The word image, contextually, the way Moses uses it, literally means image. It's... A word that means likeness. The second word he uses is a word that means likeness, similitude, similar to. So God said, Let us make man similar like ourselves. Some argue these two distinct words argue two different parts of humanity. I don't think that's the case at all. I'm, as a translator guy, and as a translator guy who's schooled in Hebrew, I'm going to tell you my opinion, and it matches with other people. And so you can disagree, this is fine, this is debatable, but I'm going to tell you what I think. I would argue based on how the Hebrew language works, Moses is using synonyms back to back for superlative effect because in the Hebrew language, there are no superlatives. Like if you want to say something super good, like really, really good in Hebrew, you just repeat it. Like God's dominant characteristic in Isaiah chapter 6, it's the only place one of God's characteristics is repeated three times. It's holy, holy, holy. So if you want to say God is holy and he's super holy, you don't say God's super holy because Hebrew doesn't have a word for super. You just say it three times, you get... He's he's dagum holy. Right? And so and so here he uses these two synonyms back to back for superlative effect to communicate this reality that human beings are really really very much like God. We're not God, that's clear. We're created. We have a born on date. We have a time stamp. God's eternal, we're not. But we're very much like God. Like that that should, that gives me a little bit of goosebumpiness very much like God, the similitude and likeness of God. Just like God in three persons, yet one God. We learn this in the New Testament clearly, and we can read back over the Old Testament and see how God reveals himself as three in one. Just like that, God constructs in man unity, one person, but multiple parts all in one being. We're beautifully complex creatures. We have a physical form. And by the way, what I'm about to tell you is super in the middle of Christian orthodoxy and rarely talked about in our evangelical circles. And the primary we just don't do theology. We do pop culture. We use theological language on top of pop culture terms and assume them back into the Bible. And that's just deadly. It's horribly deadly. The Bible is clear we're made in the image of God. And when we read in Colossians chapter one that Jesus, the eternal son of God, who we see through the Old Testament manifest himself to Abraham in Genesis 18 when he walks up in physical form with two of his hosts of heaven to bring destruction on a city that will not repent. Jesus, the fourth man in the fiery furnace, relationship with yourself because you are a unit and yet you are complex at the same time. And you have a physical part and you have immaterial parts and the relationship between those matter. Just like the Father, Son, and the Spirit work together in harmony and love, we're made in that image and we are to work in and with ourselves in harmony and love. So part of our work in redemption is restoring relationship to yourself appropriately in the gospel, which is why mental and emotional health is important. It's because it is, it is restoring order back to the internal chaos of this system God gloriously created in His image. One of the worst things that's happened in evangelical culture is to deny that and write it off as secular. That's a lie. It's birthed in hell, and it's intended to keep you away from health. And when it comes out of the mouths of well-meaning Christians, I say to you, repent. This is important, and one of the reasons it's vital is because Moses is leading God's people into a land where confusion on who mankind is and man's relationship to himself, to creation, and his relationship to the spiritual world and man's role has been pillaged and abused and wrecked. And it's imperative in their discipleship that they understand who they are so that they don't go down the discipleship path of these other nations that have wrecked the image of God. And Moses wants them to know who God is and what he intends for them as health and wholeness. And I would say we're no different than today because we live in a world that doesn't honor and value the image of God in man. I would say we live in a Christian subculture that has no clue of the value and honor and dignity held in mankind. I think we ignore it. And when someone tries to speak to it, we try to use the Bible to deny it. This is because sin has marred God's image in us. It has refracted it. And when we're left to our own devices, we will wound severely what God has made innately good. Man is like God in unity and complexity, but we are not God. But we are very much like God. Well, what else does it mean to be like God? We see in verse 27, the image of God in man means that mankind is male and female. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, and he created them male and female. God creates man. God creates woman from man and declares both are in his image. Men's and women's differences are part of the image of God. That is... The differences between men and women reflect in some way the image of God in creativity and glory. Now, we need to be careful with how we speak about this, and I'm going to be very, very careful how I speak to this. Somehow, and in some way, the triune God has constructed male and female as part of his image in us. This is good. And it's rather mysterious when we look to see these qualities in God's creation because of how we have a refracted view of what manhood and womanhood looks like. So we need to be careful in projecting those back onto God. Let me give you an example. This is why I'm saying I want us to be very careful here. Understand, male and female, these differences. We're going to get to that in just a second. But I want us to be careful in reading that back onto God. Like That's bad theology is to reflect my observations and what I think back on the the reality of God. We need to go in the opposite direction. Here's who God is. That's how God defines himself, and that's what we are like. Does that make sense? All right, so here's where I want us to be careful. Like, oh, God's got mail in him, so God must be a backy-chewing, bourbon-drinking, deer-killing, slaughtering Bible study dude. No, probably not. Don't think so. And I I was trying to think of the equivalent to a a girl, a woman, and everything I came up with, I I could hear Jennifer's voice going, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. So I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. But here's what I think is important for us to understand in the difference in male and female. The difference in us as reflective of God's image is way beyond what Moses intends by the Holy Spirit to reveal to us in this text. And we should be careful about speculating further. What we do know and what we do understand is the differences in men and women that reflect the image of God is that there is creativity and care in what God did for complementary gifts in unity and diversity. That somehow in the image of God, there is a complexity of unity and diversity in complementary gifts. You see this when you study the Trinity in the Bible. We've studied the Trinity already. One God, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each having a different role and different function, working together in unity on mission. And somehow what we learn in the Bible is that's how men and women are to work together. Unified particularly in the marriage relationship. We'll we'll say just quickly hit that in a moment Men and women and all their differences display the multifaceted glory of God in unity and diversity We see also this important pattern the differences in men and women set the pattern for marriage and human relationships in marriage One man plus one woman for life. That's God's pattern. That's it. It just is what it is science bears that out, biology bears that out, and any ideology or worldview that contradicts that is garbage. It's not even good science. And so the image of God is man and woman together for life. That's, that's the differences put together. That's what God intends. And then this biblical image of marriage that God put together and performed in Eden is to be an image of what covenant relationship is to be between God and His people. Go see Ephesians chapter 5, which is why marriage is so vital in the local church as it is to be an image of how God relates to His people and it is a temporary image. It is not forever. Important. So male and female is the image of God. Now I put a big note here in the middle of your notes to explain why I hate why I hate my notes. I'm having to explain them. The next part of answering this question of what does it mean to be like God is going to follow a framework that I I really appreciate in in a guy named John Frame and his systematic theology on the image of man. Because I see what Frame sees from Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 to 28. And that God creates humans to bear the likeness of himself as prophet, priest, and king. These parts of God's nature, I think, make themselves evident in the text. If you understand, if you've read your Bible through a couple of times and pay attention to the roles of prophet, priest, and king, and see Jesus' ministry as prophet, priest, and king, and then see how he images that out in the people of God, redeemed by mission as prophet, priest, and king, you begin to look back in Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, and see the role of the image of God in man as prophet, priest, and king. And so... That's why I want you to understand as we move from image of God being like God, multiple complex parts, and one male and female, what else does this look like? We're going to follow this framework. So if you go read John Frame, you go, that's it. That's exactly right. That's it. So what's even b- more beautiful about this is when Jesus comes and establishes the foothold of his kingdom, he fulfills in himself these beautiful offices of prophet, priest, and king because he's the image in which we are made. He's the prophet who speaks the word of God rightly. He's the priest who is present and represents well the Father. And he's king ruling over and subduing well. And he does this beautiful thing in his work on the cross. When he dies and is buried and rises on the third day and ascends to the Father, Jesus saves and gathers a people who all become what we learn from Peter, a royal priesthood. A holy nation ruled by the king of kings through biblical church government and governed by his prophetic words spoken and preached in the church and in the streets of our world so that all people might come to know Jesus Christ and be healed of the curse of sin and be brought into a redeemed relationship as prophets, priests, and kings. Therefore, prophet, priest, and king captures in large swaths what it means to be like God as his image bears. So let's take a peek at that real quickly. So, the image of God means that mankind has a prophetic authority. We'll see this in verse 26. The image of God means that mankind has a prophetic authority. The prophet's role in the Bible is to speak God's word faithfully. Why? Why would the prophet's role be to speak God's word faithfully? Because if you pay attention to Genesis chapter 1, the most dominant, I went through with a colored pencil, and I colored every single instance in which this occurs. I didn't even count them because it's just too many to count. You will see God speaking. God said. 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 So we learn automatically on the first chapter of the Bible, God speaks. God talks a lot. God's not silent. And can you imagine for a moment, as the Lord breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, one of Adam's first memories is hearing the voice of God. Wow. God communicates and he uses language. So God ordains language to be a means by which his knowledge is transferred from human to human to human. When God speaks, he decrees, he causes things to happen. We get to verse 26, and then God said, Let us make man in our image. And then we see this worked out in Genesis chapter 2 verse 19 where Moses records for us Adam's first day on the job. No sin. Sin isn't there yet. And God hasn't yet taken a rib from Adam to make woman. And part of God's function is for Adam to discover the knowledge that there's not one that corresponds to him like with these other animals. And so God's about to perform the first wedding. But before he does that, God gathers all the animals, he speaks to them, and they come to Adam. And Adam begins to exercise his prophetic work of speaking their names according to his observation and according to what he spoke, that became its identity. Listen to it. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Adam spoke like God spoke because he's made in the image of God and that prophetic ministry of speaking God's word, Adam begins to exercise It's so powerful that whatever he named that creature, it became its identity. Listen, here's a little bit of reality for you today. A zebra's a zebra because Adam called it a zebra. Facts. You his words because he's made in the image of God who is the prophet the eternal son of God who speaks God's word rightly and he begins his co-regency with the Lord by acting like the Lord and speaking faithfully and truly. Adam's like God as he speaks on behalf of God. Notice God doesn't name the animals. God lets Adam do it because Adam is his co-regent. And he's like the Lord. Not the Lord, but he's like the Lord. And he speaks and names. Language and its use is a prophetic activity and has powerful potential, which is why the Bible cautions us about how we speak. In fact, we learn from James that speech is so powerful it sets entire forests on fire. Metaphorically meaning the tongue can destroy So it has power in it. Language, prophetic speaking has power. Which is why God ordains the preaching of his word. There's something about human language coming out of the mouth of an image bearer according to the word of God that has powerful effect to land on other humans and do transformative work. Which is why Proverbs tells us life and death are in the power of the tongue. Because it's a prophetic image bearing reality. This is why we read in the Old Testament God gets so fired up at the prophets when they speak poorly about him. And go so far as to judge them by sending an evil member of the host to be lying spirits in the mouths of these prophets to bring judgment on them when they're lying about God. God takes our prophetic image that seriously. We're made in that image and we're to exercise that gift of speaking the word of God rightly. We're not to make more of that prophetic likeness by attempting to be God. We do not create from nothing. We don't speak into existence things that don't exist. That's sin. Only God can do that. But we are not to make less of that prophetic likeness by failing to recognize the powerful purpose of speaking God's word and life into our lives, our family's lives, each other's lives, and the world around us as we preach the gospel. If we're silent with the prophetic gospel, don't be surprised that the powerful gospel is not present in our society because we've hushed and we're quiet about it. This is why we say the gospel isn't just the acts you do, it's the gospel, it's the message you open your mouth and proclaim. There is power in the image of God in us to open our mouths and say so, which is why Jesus said heal and say to them. If there's no saying, don't be surprised that the healing also is in effect. They go together. Because we made the image of the prophetic God. Next we see the image of God means that mankind has a priestly presence. A priestly presence. The role of the priest was to represent God's presence among his people. That was their job. They were to be present. Representing God's Presence. God doesn't create from a distance we learn in Genesis 1 and 2 that even the Lord Jesus walks in the garden in the cool of the day for fellowship with them he's present with them he presently creates Adam he takes a rib from Adam and fashions that rib into woman he's present in his creation and then God puts Adam on the job and Adam is present among the creatures it's God who summons the creatures to them and by the way if you read Magician's Nephew you're like I know where Lewis got it from now like wow if you hadn't read Magicians now if you need to repent and go read some children's books they will help you read your Bible better so God speaks to the creatures and they come to Adam and Adam is with them as he observes them and sees the splendor and majesty of the Lord Jesus and he prophetically puts names on them while he's with them isn't that fun isn't that awesome awesome Adam's God's co-regent who represents him among all that he's made. And so he's like God in being present as God's priestly representative. Adam is to be present, but he's not God. And he can't be all present because he's not God. So what's he supposed to do? Well, God answers the question. We read here, verse 28, God blessed them. Male and female, made him in his image. So God blessed them, and what did he tell them to do? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So God gave them the capacity and his blessing of them to multiply and fill the earth with other image bearers so Adam and his children can be present in the whole earth as God's priestly representative. So when you have children and you bring children to your home, whether biologically or through other means, adoption and fostering, you're taking on the priestly responsibility of multiplying prophetic priestly presence in creation by training and sending to be on mission. God blessed them, it says. This, this word to bless them is God empowered, gave capacity for them to be fruitful and multiply so that they could do the priestly work of making sure all of creation had a priestly presence who represented the prophetic word of the Lord everywhere, which is why Jesus, again, you've heard it a hundred times, say it again, repetition is key to learning. Jesus, when he preaches the Great Commission, tells us to go make disciples of all nations, not making up something new, he's repeating what he gave them in Genesis chapter 1, 26- 28 it's the mission and now all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus and he's given it to us when he gave us the Holy Spirit so there's nothing we lack we just need to obey it so part of the work is to fill the earth with priests I need to move on next we see the image of God means that mankind has a kingly work of subduing and ruling he has a kingly work of subduing and ruling you see this also in verse 28 What we mean by kingly is that man was created in God's image to exercise oversight in properly doing with creation what God designed them to do with creation as his co-regents. So what does that kingly work look like? Well, the language of Genesis 128 speaks to our role in stewarding physical creation. And here's what it says. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Subdue and rule. These two words are kibosh and radah. And kibosh is fun because if you watch enough movies, you've heard enough Yiddish for somebody to talk about putting the kibosh on something. Well, that came straight out of the Bible because kibosh is a word that means to subdue. When say you need to put the kibosh on it, or man, you need to tamp that down a little bit, man. You're a little too loud, a little too boisterous. Put the kibosh on it. And then the other word, radah, means to rule. Man's kingly rule is to get the absolute maximum out of this absolutely wild and living earth by putting the kibosh on it. This is crazy. This is, by the way, not a negative word. You always typically hear it used in a negative connotation, but there's no sin right now, right? This is pre-sin. And the Lord says, this thing is so alive and so wild, Adam, and Eve and children, what you're gonna to have to do is work to maximize this wildness. Put some boundaries around it. Learn to prune things. Learn to plant things the right way. Learn to get this animal like this. Learn to do these things. It's a positive word that implies that things need work. They need necessary and appropriate means applied to them to maximize them on this earth. This is where vocation comes from. This is why vocational domains of society are key for us. It's because this is what you were made to do. Man's kingly rule looks like overseeing and ruling the fulfillment of creation's potential and righteousness as godly and kingly co-regents. C.S. Lewis says, kings and queens of Narnia. I'm telling you, Help you read your Bible better. Just go read them. Promise you. And they will entertain you like crazy. This kingly rule is often called in theological circles the cultural mandate. I prefer to call it the creation mandate as obedience to God's created function that then creates culture. It's just my little nuance. Can't help it. The subduing and ruling of creation is the act of creating culture out of all the domains that make up a whole society by the means of being God's representatives as prophets, priests, and kings. (laughs) Don't sell that for ministry. And I know that's not what's going to sell in our culture of ministry Don't sell that out for ministry. You're no less a minister of the gospel when you're taming creation and maximizing it as a prophet, a priest, or a king. Don't sell that for ministry. I'm begging you. Don't do it. How are we going to multiply the Great Commission workforce? It's not going to be by ordaining more elders. It's going to be by releasing the whole church by asking and answering the question: What if the whole church understood its missionary function? What if every disciple understood that they were put together Psalm one thirty nine by God on purpose, intentionally wired for every domain of society? He created to be a prophet and a priest and a king or queen. <laughs> That's how we're going to do it. That's the only way to do it. That's His means. And somehow we've come to this book and created a culture that isn't replicatable, isn't multipliable, it's not even financially feasible where we highlight a class of ministry and then there's just the rest of us. Your prophet, priest, and kingly and queenly roles are the key to Matthew twenty-four fourteen, And this gospel will be preached among all the nations and then the end will come. There is no completion, there is no return of Jesus until we obey the command to multiply and fill the earth and do our prophet, priest, and king work of preaching this good news and healing from sin. It's all of us, every disciple everywhere all the time. So here's the application. What in the world has happened to this good stuff of the image of God? Something's clearly wrong. That was clearly wrong. Genesis 3 tells us sin has inserted the virus of death into this glorious work that God has done. Sin has not destroyed the image of God in man, but it has marred the image of God in man, and therefore man's work as God's co regents has become more difficult. God tells us that in Genesis 3. What has sin killed? sin's killed first and foremost and this is most vital and i may stop here i mean you can go read the notes this is where i may stop because i want to make sure you get this sin has killed relationship and, and the reason this is important jennifer and i had this discussion we've been having this discussion all week uh makato fujimura and his wife hajin were at berry college this week and if you don't know who the fujimuras are you need to go read and if you're a Barry student, haven't been over to Oak Hill to see the work, and if you didn't show up to hear this man and this woman speak on your campus, repent. And I don't think I don't think Barry videoed it, but he understands domains like nobody else I've ever been around. Nobody else. And you go read some of the books he's written on this very issue. You can just Google a and YouTube his name and watch some of the videos. I might post some of them actually on the bottom side of this sermon. But what's happened and what sin has done is destroy relationship. It's destroyed relationship between God and man. We're now separated from God and at war with God and under God's condemnation. It's destroyed relationship between man and himself. So that on the inside, shame and fear rule. One of the first things that happen, we see in Genesis chapter 3, is there is shame and fear. And it's an internal issue in all of us. And navigating the internal conflicts of shame and fear is part of the brokenness of the relationship with man to himself. And if you are not right with yourself on the inside, it's going to affect your relationships with other people on the outside. It's killed the relationship between man and man and I mean on the personal level as well as the systemic level Systems are created by people and it's supposed to be a kingly function for maximizing effort in the world But what happens in sin is because on the inside we're broke and on the outside we're broke with other people We find ways to dominate other people as opposed to love them well or maximize their flourishing and so the relationship between man and man personally and the relationship between man and man's systems is radically broken. The relationship between man and creature is broken. Rather than them coming to us for blessing, they run from us. Because what has man done? Not maximized, but destroyed there are entire species that don't exist today because of sin, and some of that sin is man's abuse of these creatures that we are supposed to care for. If you have a dog and you care about your dog, you know a little glimpse of what that's supposed to look like. I promise you one day my dog's going to be one of the talking creatures in the eternal kingdom. I am 100% sure of that. That's C.S. Lewis. That's not the Bible. I totally isogeted that. Some of are like, I think so too. I, I don't know that. I want to believe that my dog's going to talk to me in the eternal kingdom. That dog has emotions. That dog has something going on in it that is unique and special. There's this beautiful passage in the book of Job. This isn't in your notes. Where God's speaking to Job. He tells Job, see those creatures in the sea there? See that creature? That's mine. That's mine. A creature responds to me. I'm convinced God made creatures as his pets. And we're his caretakers for his pets. And there's some degree in which those creatures respond to the Lord that's beautiful. And if you're so disconnected from the natural world that you don't recognize that, go outside, put your phone down, go outside and, and look at it for a little bit. This is why Psalms tells us the heavens are declaring the glory of God. There's something about creation that's screaming, God is glorious. If you hadn't seen that, man, I'm sorry missing out but it this is huge it's in this granular work of managing the healing of these relationships that domain work gets at obeying the Lord Jesus instruction in Luke 10 9 when he says heal what is sick and then say to them the kingdom of God has come near to you Here's an example and you're going to have to unpack this. All I can do, all I can do is introduce you to it. You're going to have to unpack it. Get in your radical life group, unpack this, work this out. But here's an example I want you to follow up with. Poverty is a breach in the relationship between man and physical creation. And if you wanna go deeper into that, there's a great little book called When Helping Hurts, written by two dudes in Lafayette, Georgia, and it's a worldwide classic. Bet you had no clue that that was produced up here in Northwest Georgia, Southeast Tennessee, and it's a world-renowned classic in how to actually help breach, fix this breach in relationship between man and creation. Not everything we think we're doing is helping. It is the restoration of this relationship between man and physical creation in which dignity is restored and the capacity to multiply resources is restored. And if you simply supply that without fixing the relationship, you've hurt the work of multiplying and filling and dignity in the image of God as private priest and king. And you're gonna have to get down in the weeds of that relationship and figure that out. And when you figure that out, you will understand the essence of your work in domains, in healing. And restoring and then we are able to say the kingdom of God has come near today repent and believe in Jesus who made that right and listen it's both of those together it's not one or the other the error in our evangelical culture is to focus on one Jesus said do both and we're gonna obey him or we're not gonna obey him and I'm gonna say to you like the Lord said to me about this issue in our city in our town that deals with our children, either do what I said to do or stop putting my name on you. Do what I say or stop calling yourself a Christian. We, as the people of God, made the image of God, are created to restore these things. Sin has caused us to devalue the goodness of humanity so that we strive to control and dominate rather than serve. Sin's confused created differences in men and women and therefore sought the destruction of humans in the marriage relationship. Sin's caused mankind to abuse his prophetic role of using language by imitating the serpent, not the king of kings. Sins caused mankind to abdicate his priestly role of presence and blessing creation by just going to multiple Bible studies rather than engaging his world for the sake of the gospel. Listen, if you are not among people who oppose your worldview, you're not doing work right. You have to be among people who don't know. If you're not, you're not on mission. If all you know is Christian subculture, you're not on mission. You're failing to exercise the prophet, priest, and kingly roles of multiplying and filling the earth. And we can't abdicate our priestly role by our fifth Bible study of the week. Today's enough. Your radical life group's enough. Go to work, find somebody that doesn't know Jesus, find a broken relationship, and heal it. And preach. And if you do that, we multiplied the Great Commission workforce this morning by hundred. Isn't that awesome? Some people are like, yeah, and some people are like, oh no. Right? Our priestly role is to be among, not isolated from. Sin calls mankind to take his kingly authority and use it to oppress and damage rather than to cultivate and see flourishing. What did God tell them? The day? you eat of this tree, you will die. They just didn't believe him. And you know what? Neither do we. Neither do we. Our parents didn't believe him in the garden. We don't believe it now. You want to know why I know that? Because at some point today, I'll be confronted with a decision to make in some stupid small little thing that feels insignificant right now. And I will choose... Volitionally to violate a clear, revealed value of God. Thinking, i eh, that'd be alright. When in fact, what it does is pillage our prophetic, priestly, and kingly roles. So what do we do? Repent and believe the good news of Jesus and his kingdom. When you do that, new creation breaks in. And you'll be set on the path to being back on mission with God and with the world. Then get to know God. Spend time in His Word. Learn the Holy Spirit. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the earth. You know one of the reasons we don't have any witness? Is because we haven't tapped into the power of the present Holy Spirit. We ignore him, we debate what he does, we want to argue about his ministry and what he can and cannot do. And what I would rather do is reign a stallion than prod a nag, get to know the Holy Spirit, and walk with him and live in his power. That makes some of you uncomfortable. Okay, just go do something. Go do something where you have to depend on the Holy Spirit. Get to know God. Join him on mission. Get to know the power of the Holy Spirit. Exercise your role as a prophet of God by knowing and speaking his word to anybody who will hear. Listen, you can find strategic ways to slip Bible verses in. Just be slick. Talk Bible. Learn to talk Bible and you'll be a prophet. Exercise your role as priest in your vocational domain by being present. It's going to be different from each one of you. You're going to have to figure out what does it look like like for some of you in education, it is managing the relationship between humans and humans and humans and systems and the chaos that is present there. And fixing that is hard, which is why a lot of teachers are leaving the classroom. Because simply inviting kids to come to know Jesus isn't fixing the problem. It's hard. It's hard. But that's our priestly role. Exercise your role as king and queen of Narnia in subduing and ruling first yourself don't come to somebody else and tell them how to get their life in order when yours isn't in order right jesus said you got a log sticking out of your eye and you're coming telling somebody how to get the speck out of theirs quit hitting people in the head with the log in your eye get your speck under control rule yourself well and then become a help to other people then walk in a life of sanctification that's It only comes through the cross. There is no sanctification without hardship. And that's not what I want to tell you. I don't want to believe that. I I often pray, Lord, I need to learn this, but please be gentle. Please be gentle. (laughs) And, And the Lord just constantly, he continues to put in front of me the prophetic reminder that the cross is the way of sanctification. It's the only way. It's the only way. Which is why Paul said in Galatians 6.14, we boast, we boast in the cross. Through which we die to the world. <laughs> it just is what it is. If you're going to die to the world, it's going to be through the flames of the cross. Oh, but the marvelous, precious gift it is to know that He is truly cleaning you up because you belong to Him. And you are regaining your prophetic, your priestly, and your kingly and queenly roles in the earth. So walk a life of sanctification. Don't avoid the cross. Just pass through and he will be with you. His rod and his staff will comfort you and he'll prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. Your cup will overflow so that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Father, we want to worship this morning well. We believe we bear your image. And we believe that it's a good shot that most of us sitting in this room have met you in faith. And you have, new creation has broken in and you have transformed us and given us new hearts and new desires and given us your spirit. And we're fighting, we're working out, trying to live that out. And so we want to worship you this morning and we, we want, we see, we know, we believe your word is lamp for our feet and light for our path and, and you call us to, to worship you and sing to you and glorify you and what we hear and how we assimilate our thinking and, and the songs that we sing. So we want to come and bring that to you and Lord, we want to um, bring you a sacrifice that's worthy. If we don't like worship this morning, it has to be we don't like what we brought you. So help us to come and bring to you a sacrifice that is worthy of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Lord, I pray this morning that perhaps somehow, some way, there's a redemptive spark that was lit in a heart today. Maybe it's the culmination of weeks. Maybe it's just something today. Maybe it was a word, a phrase, a sentence that entered. new creation started to break in would you please Holy Spirit cause that to have gas poured on it spiritual supernatural powerful gas if you would do that even now bring to life resurrect kill flesh we ask you to please do that we want you there's nothing better than you we lost you in the fall and you have given us of your spirit to drink as a deposit guaranteeing that future inheritance. And we want to taste more of that. We want more of you. We want the flesh out of the way. We want to walk by the spirit. We want all that you want to give to us. We come declare that to you. We come say that to you. We confess that to you. We proclaim that to you. We pray that in this moment where we come to sing that you would grant tangibly some of that to us this morning. You are worthy of what we want to bring to you. We pray you receive it.